Wanting to build resilient, efficient, and inclusive communities was the reason I became a city planner. And I love having the opportunity to geek out on all things city-related. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Stephen Rates from Paths for People for a conversation about how we can build our communities stronger, smarter, together. Hello, Stephen, and thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for inviting Paths for People to uh, speak with your campaign. So Paths for People is taking a really interesting approach to the municipal election. So your organization isn't endorsing any particular candidate, but you are reaching out to every candidate to ask them their thoughts on active transportation and, and other key issues. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that came about? So Paths for People is a nonprofit based in Edmonton. We have about 1500 members across the city and we're run by a volunteer board. So we of course focus on building safer, more livable streets through advocacy, through programming. And one really key event that we have every four years is that municipal election where we actually elect the people that we end up advocating towards um, at the council level. So we saw this um, not endorsing but looking to reach out to everybody and get simple statements that then we can then share with our membership um, as a really feasible way to uh, connect people and also allow campaigns to like uh, amplify what they believe we should do when it comes to our streets and our transportation networks and um, walking, rolling and biking in our communities. Uh, so yeah, that was kind of the rationale behind our decision and we will be releasing things over September and October to help people get informed before they head to the polls. Oh, that's so exciting. I really like that approach of, you know, sparking conversation and having multiple candidates talking about similar issues that are that are so important to our community. I really do admire Paths for People's approach of focusing on on people and quality of life rather than you know, one mode versus another mode, uh, you know, it's really just looking about how how we can live our best lives in, in the city. But what I find so neat about Ward O'Damon in particular is that we're sort of proof that it's possible to shift it, even in Edmonton, even in Edmonton, even with the winter. About 55% of uh, folks uh, in the last municipal election did say that they relied primarily on cars, either to drive or as a passenger. But over 40% in O'Damon said that they use active transportation. So transit and walking were actually the two biggest and then cycling as well. Um, so again, just sort of this example that like it is possible, we, we are doing it, uh, it can happen. I still feel, and you, you probably are aware of them too, that there are some gaps in our ward and some, some pieces that we need to, to fill in. And I know Paths for People actually did a, a missing link project back in 2019. So in your mind, what are some of those, those missing pieces that, uh, that we need to get busy looking at? Yeah, absolutely. And that core of the Missing Links campaign, I think is really important to remind ourselves about is that, that these were high impact, low cost solutions. Mm -hmm. um, and again, relating back to that transportation network being our public domain, where we engage the most in our community or have the potential to. Um, and O'Damon, Word O'Damon, uh, provides a lot of really great connectivity with the expansion of the downtown bike network with street skates improvements going on with the LRT being implemented in the uh, east end of the ward and then also extending to the west in the near future. Um, so reviewing that 2019 missing links campaign, 
we see that a lot of good connections have already been made. And now it's kind of a conversation about the broader city. That was kind of the beautiful thing about the map that we created is that mm -hmm. it was all over the place that we, maybe not a beautiful thing because we're talking about like, oh, people can't move through their community <laughs> because they're missing links and that kind of thing. Um, but it shows that active transportation is an issue all across the city. But to bring it back to Ward O'Damon, um, you know, we see Victoria Park Hill Road as one mm -hmm. really, really key connection. And one of those very simple changes that we can make um, that, you know, the Oliver Community League is really excited about, that we would be really excited about, because it's providing uh, important connection to like recreation for folks in that neighborhood. We know that also there's connections from the core to the east and to the north mm -hmm. that could be improved. Um, and to the west, it's, it's, pretty well stitched together at this point there's always improvements but that's indicative of the fact that we did place priority on expanding the cycling network out that way first and improving active transportation connect connections in that area but now we see that hopefully through that Boyle Street and Macaulay neighborhood renewal we can enhance uh, connections mm -hmm. in that direction and then also to the north too through Queen Mary Park seeing projects like 107 Ave and 105 Avenue um, mm -hmm. you know hopefully that provides some steps forward where we can close some of the missing links along those corridors um but also just to reinforce that you know sometimes it's we don't always move forward and this is why it's really important to um elect councillors who will fight for certain issues what we ended up with on 105 avenue was a project that actually takes us a step backwards regarding that east-west cycling connection where we move mm. from something that right now it's all ages and all abilities um, and we actually go to a place where in many places it ends up just being a painted lane that uh, mm. provides very limited parking along the corridor. Um, so it was not the greatest redesign in some respects, but did push us forward in others. Um, and we, you know, tried to provide a more optimal vision for that. But unfortunately, it wasn't taken on by administration, even though councillors were supportive of it. It just didn't end up shifting to that place where we would see a redesign and see ourselves not go a step backwards. Yeah, very important in a municipal election cycle to elect people who make sure that we step forward. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point and sort of a great reminder that great streets and great cities don't happen by accident. You know, there's there's so much diligence that needs to go into it and sort of constant attention to make sure that we're paying attention to to the policies we have in place and then how those are getting implemented. Um, yeah, it really is. It really is in the details a lot of the time. Um, but it's exciting. I mean, I think something that you've touched on, which is really great, is just sort of, you know, high impact, low cost and making use of what we already have. Like uh, you mentioned the Victoria Hill, which is, yeah, very exciting to, to have seen the past two summers. And as you say, it's sort of a great demonstration project that it is possible. And I sort of love that about a lot of the, the tactical things that we can do in our public realm and in our streets is that they don't have to be permanent right away. So, you know, an idea that I, I have is actually shutting down River Valley Road during the weekends from sort of Friday afternoon to Sunday evening, just sort of can be a few planters that get put up at either end of the street. Uh, and then you have this new public space. And if that works, and if that's successful, then, then we can carry it forward. And if it's not, you know, a lesson learned and, and we move on. Yes, that is something that we've talked about with other uh, advocacy groups that focus in the River Valley um, mm. is that idea of, uh, yeah, 
maybe the first step is just closing down temporarily, providing programming that draws people in and gets them to reimagine that space. Yeah. Um, because yeah, you know, I can, until I'm blue in the face, tell people, isn't biking or walking or rolling fun, uh, especially <laughs> when we have a beautiful river valley to do it within. Um, I can say that a ton, but it might not persuade people to get to the spot where they're like, oh, we could close down a road every once in a while just to test it out. Um, the other really interesting thing to remind ourselves about River Valley Road is that it, you know, is part of the larger makeup of what would have been a freeway system that like gutted our entire River Valley. And so right. parts of that, especially through Rossdale, were built, but um, the rest of it didn't roll forward. Um, especially through McKinnon Ravine, which is, you know, you think of a highway for cyclists, for active transportation, for walking, for rolling. Um, that is a huge east-west connection through our, our city. Um, mm -hmm. And it would have been a highway for just vehicles. Um, and it would have been very expensive and it would have decimated the natural parts of our uh, river valley. Um, so taking back River Valley Road in a small way to start is a way of, you know, further working against that really negative larger vision that almost got fully implemented within our river valley and would have like gutted one of the things mm -hmm. that Edmontonians value the most. So mm -hmm. yeah, it would be, you know, it's really exciting to think about um, river valley road on a temporary basis. It might be interesting to hear from you. Um, you know, Rossdale is an area that we no, is in the core of the city. It is in a really interesting spot. It is crisscrossed with those roads that were mm -hmm. built to freeway capacity. What do you think needs to be some of the things to support developing areas of that neighborhood that are just currently vacant, just vacant lots? What are some of the things, especially related to the transportation realm, um, that would really support those changes, urbanization infill? Yeah, well, you know, 97th Ave, whenever I drive or am biking down that street, I just think, oh man, it is so, it's so overbuilt. It's just, it's not an asset in any way. And it's such a barrier, like trying to get from uh, the north of Rossdale to the south of Rossdale, it's just, uh, you know, a massive wall. Um, and I don't think it really serves the people who are living there. It's, you know, uh, great for passing through. Um, but, you know, I've, I've been lucky to see so many different road interventions and, and even looking at that space, it can sometimes seem really impossible to shift. Um, there's just so much we could do with the road itself. Just, uh, you know, again, testing out, having, having a couple of um, the curb lanes reduced uh, so the crossings are shorter, maybe having more crossing opportunities, starting to bring plants in. So there's sort of like a a street infrastructure piece, which I think is just about changing the width of that road, more or less, is where it starts. But then absolutely right in terms of the land use piece, um, looking at what development can go along uh, that road. So I think, you know, you probably know that there, this idea of like the sticky sides. So, you know, the more development you have along a street or the slower people naturally go. And so I know that the city is redoing the Artonas building just there. So again, interesting to see what mix of uses might be able to be brought in there. And then some of that vacant land, you know, absolutely wanting to see more, more folks being able to live down in that area and provide the population to really make it more, more of a people place. I, I thought I would throw in a curveball there. So I appreciate no, I love your answer it. on that one. I love <laughs> it. Yeah, but you know, and it's and it's really, it is possible to do. Like I, especially that bridge too, it just seems like such a highway. I don't even know, does it even have a sidewalk on it? 
It has a sidewalk just on the north side. Just on so, the north side. Okay, interesting. It, it could be a highway that is cut in half, like <laughs> in my in my perspective, like yeah. Um, because, you know, we've had really good conversations with those folks that advocate for, you know, river valley conservation and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're worried about intensification and seeing more of the river valley eaten up oh, um, by urban uses. Um, but I think one thing we need to remind ourselves is that actually we've over allocated in some senses to parking lots, to, uh, you know, massive arterials. Let's unallocate that and try to naturalize it in some ways and then allow ourselves to also work towards you know a vision that's set out in the city plan of a more urban city of a city where people have uh, more transportation choices where we see our downtown and core fill up um, mm -hmm. so yeah it's kind of an interesting equation that we'd hope to see move forward in the coming years especially as you know Rossdale may be something that might be a larger redevelopment opportunity sooner rather than later. Paths for People has an incredible track record of successful advocacy. And I know uh, Boyle Street and Macaulay have neighborhood renewal coming up. And I've heard residents there talk about how they really want to make the most of that opportunity. So I'm curious, does Paths for People offer any sort of neighborhood level support or training for community groups that are going through neighborhood renewal in terms of, you know, the right questions to ask and, and what to be pushing for? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we definitely, we have that membership of 1500 folks across the city and those are distributed far and wide. So through the neighborhood renewal process, we'll hear from different communities, from our members in those communities or from mm -hmm. community members who then become our members as well when they sign up at <laughs> pathsforpeople.org uh, slash take action. Uh, go to our website and check it out. Um, we hear from them uh, and they are interested in, you know, walkable, vibrant, safer, more livable streets um, and, you know, have questions about like, how can this fit into the process? What are some of the key things that we can advocate for? And so we're always responsive to inquiries like that. We do have a general contact form on our website as well where you can reach out to us at info at pathsforpeople.org. Um, so, yeah, we are definitely... Uh, responsive to questions that we get in. Um, we also do ensure that we amplify neighborhood renewal engagement opportunities too with our members because, you know, we're renewing the neighborhood for the folks that live there, but also the folks that move through there. So, um, you know, there's a wider catchment area that often gets engaged through our membership. Um, and then we ourselves will like attend these events and, um, you know, be a part of those community discussions where you do tackle some of those more difficult subjects or people who might be more stuck in their viewpoint. Um, and, you know, try to be part of that shifting perspectives or at least getting to a place where we understand each other's perspectives. We have uh, begun to experiment with the idea of programming focused on um, neighborhood renewal or neighborhood improvements. Earlier this summer uh, in the neighborhood of Strathern Heights, we just went out with some community members and did a walking audit. We looked mm -hmm. at different streets in the neighborhood and identified, oh, this might be a really cool spot for something like a Vision Zero Street Lab, um, which is a mm -hmm. new program the city's rolled out. Yeah, so kind of helping them set up for future applications where they can introduce some traffic calming or more community space on their streets through programming. Oh, I love that. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> just in, incredible support for our communities. 
you know, I really appreciate you mentioning this idea of using engagement as an opportunity to bring different voices together. I think there's been a lot of polarized uh, discussion around our, our streets and our road ne- networks and, you know, very recently around pickup trucks and, um, you know, something that, that I hear about quite frequently as well is, you know, scooters uh, and, and concerns about how we're, we're balancing the needs of all users. And I, you know, I always think that it is possible that we actually can find solutions that work for everyone um, and that really provide, again, it's about, it's about choices. It's about providing those, those different options for folks. But on the topic of scooters, what would you say, how, how can we approach that as a community? I think, you know, I've seen the, the sort of vitality that it's brought to the neighborhood. Um, I've, you know, I'm not a huge scooter user, but the times that I've needed it, it has just been the exact thing that I needed at the exact right time. Um, but I do, I do see them going quite fast on sidewalks. Um, you know, I, I think there have been calls to say, well, it's just a matter of creating, you know, more safe, on-street uh, facilities for for different transportation modes. Um, so you know, expanding the bike network, having having that space so that people don't have to feel unsafe on on the roads. But what what are your thoughts on in terms of maybe some other approaches or, or tools that we could make use of? There are so many places to go with this. Uh, so very <laughs> great question. Um, I think the the big the big thing to keep in mind, I can't think of a better word than thing at this moment in time, but we need to remind ourselves that this is like a small symptom of our transportation system massively changing in the next 10 to 20 years, like changing more Mm -hmm. than it has in the past hundred years. In the next 10 to 20 years, our transportation system is going to be, um, you know, based on electric energy as as opposed to like combustion. It's going to be more multimodal where you have some of those um, mobility services, providing people with those small options to connect to from A to B. Um, We'll definitely see the increase uh, in mass transit within the core too. Um, And so our streets are going to change a lot. And what we are experiencing with e-scooters is in a hundred different permutations, it's just going to become the norm now. Like we're going to mm-hmm. experience all these little issues. So we got to get more comfortable with reevaluating how our roadways work because there's all this change that's going to be introduced to them. I didn't even mm-hmm. say autonomous vehicles in that. Like that's another <laughs> huge thing. Like we just need to get more comfortable with change, um, mm-hmm. especially the transportation engineers. And I know transportation engineers and I like working with them. They keep me on planet earth but we also got to make sure that we're ready for where we're rolling next. Um, So back to scooters at the core, um, what we see as really important and what you kind of raised there was that we just need more space for this kind of stuff. Like this stuff is hitting our streets um, for parts of the year and is introducing some conflict. um, And just briefly on that point of polarization, we also need to remind ourselves like everybody walks or rolls, like we can all unite ourselves on, in that, in that sort of experience. Um, And Mm so when we're using scooters, we also have to remind ourselves, okay, how would I like to be treated uh, by someone passing me on their scooter when I'm walking or rolling? Um, We need to keep that in mind in any mode that we use. Like, Mm -hmm. how would you like me to be interacted with? We saw this rollout um, as a response to COVID, but, you know, mobility lanes and shared streets, um, traffic calming being introduced on, you know, both neighborhood streets and main streets, we need to do more of that to ensure that we can actually meet the needs of the 
more different types of vehicles that are going to be on our streets in the future. So those, you know, temporary changes can really meet the needs of temporary services that are provided, you know, spring, summer, fall in mm-hmm. our communities. Um, and beyond that, it's also then getting ready for further change. Cause this is, this is just the tip of the iceberg in some ways, like scooters get people riled up, wait until you see what's coming down the pipe next. Cause that's going to freaking <laughs> blow your mind. It's going to be crazy. So let's get ready for that by getting more imaginative with our streets. Oh, that's a great, that's a great takeaway. Um, not only that, yeah, we need to be always ready for this change, but I also appreciate your point about needing to remember how we feel when we're a different uh, type of user. Because I think most of us are multimodal. So uh, not only do we all walk or roll, uh, we usually either bike or take transit or drive. And I know that I I have that when I'm when I'm biking, I just think all drivers are terrible. And when I'm driving, I think all cyclists are terrible. <laughs> and it's, you know, really remembering that we're all trying to get from point A to point B as safely as possible. And, uh, and remembering that that courtesy as well, that um, we're all all sharing that space and figuring out how to do that as a community. But it's interesting, you know, you mentioned scooters sort of being spring, summer, fall. We're working to have opportunities to bike year round uh, in Edmonton as well. And so I have heard from from some residents, you know, just sort of this sense that uh, the the bike lanes get too much priority in the winter time. I know there's some really clear stats around how we prioritize uh, different roadways and the importance of roadways. But I think you know it's undeniable that there is a bit of a drop off in cycling levels during the winter time. So can you tell me a bit about what Paths for People is doing to help support winter cycling, and what else do you think the city needs to do as well? Part of this, uh, now that we have infrastructure within the core where it can support people cycling year round um, in the places where, you know, you have the density of land uses to support, you know, cycling as a reasonable transportation choice. We have that implemented now uh, and we will see it continue to expand in the future with the implementation of the bike plan, which is something that's very vital. that infrastructure is meant to be cleared year round. Um, and so that's just going to be the status quo that we expect uh, to occur. Um, so a bigger piece of it may be having that culture shift conversation about um, how roads are maintained and how sidewalks are maintained and how bike lanes are maintained and trails are maintained and et cetera, et cetera. Um, that culture shift conversation starts at the point where we remind ourselves that there are over 10,000 kilometers of roadways in Edmonton that may receive clearing. Some of that needs to be prioritized, like some of those arterial routes or highways. Uh, And so just like our roadway network for vehicles has arterials and highways, Mm -hmm. as does our active transportation network. Um, And so, our active transportation network is comparatively much smaller too. So protected bike lanes in the city of Edmonton, there's at this point between like 10 to 30 kilometers of them. So compare that stat of stat of more than 10,000 to 10 to 30, as well as about a thousand kilometers of multi-use trails throughout the city. We're dealing with much smaller quantities of uh, linear connections to clear that also use different tools. So 
we really need to establish these facts when we have conversations mm -hmm. about winter maintenance, because at the end of the day, that vision that we can all agree with is that everybody, regardless of the mode that they use to get around, should be able to get around uh, mm -hmm. safely, comfortably. You know, we've had discussions as a board and had discussions with members where we see people using a wheelchair or a mobility aid in the bike lane in winter because it's the only place that's cleared. Mm -hmm. We're comfortable with that. Like we understand that we're not doing well enough right now on our sidewalks. So we're going to share that space because we know that oftentimes it's the only shared space. Mm -hmm. And so maybe the thing that we advocate for is greater sidewalk clearing, especially in those main street areas, especially in those active transportation kind of highway areas so that we clear the bike lane, we clear the sidewalk, we can funnel people to those um, routes so that they can still be active in winter and get from point A to point B. Yeah, that's that's such an exciting idea in terms of potentially converting bike lanes to, to shared use paths in the wintertime. Because um, that's actually, you know, I, I've heard from drivers, but I've actually also heard from pedestrians saying, you know, I have to slog through these uncleared sidewalks while this bike lane is all nice and clear. But, you know, instead of saying, well, none of us should have a clear place to to walk or roll, just say, oh, let's let's share this cleared space. Uh, I think it's a really exciting option. Sorry, if I could just interject quickly, I think that's like the good short-term temporary fix for the issue, but the longer-term yeah. fix is, yeah, clearing our active transportation corridors so that they serve everybody and that may involve an expansion of service, but, you know, it's something that aligns with some that that expansion of service that, um, you know, undertaking aligns with the higher level goals that we have as a city to be a connected city, a winter city, all of those things. And, and an inclusive one as well. I think that's, that's what excites me most about, about this is it's really providing a safe way for everyone to get around in all weather. For those listening, I uh, was like, heck yes, with my finger. I like <laughs> gave a big thumb up to that um, because the inclusivity piece is really central and like the foundation. Um, and, you know, in winter, it's often when we when we see people slip through the cracks or, um, you know, mm -hmm. actually slip and fall on the ice or are uh, like homebound through the whole winter. Um, so, yeah, it's hugely important to this discussion. And. Honestly, I should have brought it up earlier, but I'm thankful you brought it up. <laughs> no, it's all good. You've you've got so much so much to cover and so much uh, great insights that you're bringing. Um, well, and I'm curious too. I know Paths for People is doing sort of a winter cycling mentorship program as well. Tell me a little bit more about that. So I I have to confess that. I, I lived away from Edmonton for 10 years and I, I biked year round in every other place I lived. And when I moved back to Edmonton, I thought, yeah, I'm going to keep this up. I had a few really bad falls on the ice and, and gave up. Um, so, so tell me what the, the mentorship program is like and, and what that involves. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So the last winter where we would have run that was 2020 prior to COVID and we partnered with Bike Edmonton on it. And Bike Edmonton has since been able to kind of carry it forward on an online basis, but we look forward to kind of reestablishing that partnership when we might be able to do more things in person, hopefully this coming winter in a safe way. Um, but yes, the kind of intent behind it and the effects of it, um, it was really focused on empowering folks, uh, giving them the kind of tips that you only acquire through actually practicing it, transferring mm -hmm. that knowledge is really, really vital because it can be a hazardous thing. It can be a very scary thing to approach for the first time. Um, and those hazards and like fear are only amplified for people 
who are less able-bodied or may experience safety differently than me. You can't see this listener, but I'm a, I'm a white guy. I'm six foot, so I feel pretty comfortable <laughs> most of the time. And we need to remind ourselves that that's not the experience of everyone. And we should be empowering folks in the winter to cycle and giving them even more additional supports to get them there. So this mentorship program is a really big piece of that to transfer the knowledge that you acquire so that, you know, the first time you roll out on the road with your winter bike, um, you don't have to learn all those lessons. You can just mm -hmm. have them already with you and seeing that, you know, you don't need a big spiffy bike to go out and ride in the winter. Mm -hmm. I usually just use a pretty cheap like mountain bike um, and just use that because it can get me through where I need to go. Um, and yeah, just transferring little bits of knowledge through this mentorship process is um, really supportive in establishing a broader community of folks who can learn from each other and also rely on one another too. If they mm -hmm. run into an issue with parts, if they you know run into an issue on the lanes or our trails themselves, they may run into a buddy uh, who may be able to help them out as well. So yeah, yeah, establishing that better sense of community too. Yeah, that's amazing. I think that's that's such a wonderful program. And I'll have to sign myself up for this winter and uh, give it another shot. So it's interesting paths for people. You know, you do focus primarily on transportation and mobility, but there's also a lot of content on your webpage and in your social media around land use. You know, I'm really excited by this growing recognition of the important relationship between land use and transportation. We're seeing a lot of that, you know, even in city plan, the fact that it's a combined land use and transportation plan. Um, tell me more, or, you know, what, what are the key points that you think are important uh, for, for residents to be aware of and for city councillors to be aware of just in terms of how those two uh, play such an important role with each other? Mm. Absolutely. There is such a connection between those two uh, subjects. It becomes so clear in a city like Edmonton, where we really have the extremes of both. Um, very mm -hmm. autocentric city, very low density, sprawling city, like spatially taking into account low population, like one of the largest cities on earth. Um, which is just crazy to think about that we're not one of the most populous, but we're one of the largest spatially. Mm -hmm. um, so seeing that every day and having that experience of, in most cases, needing to rely on a automobile to get around, if you're privileged enough to afford one or have access to one, um, you know, having that experience every day, I think has spurred a recognition beyond just wonks and planners and policy experts, but just like everyday folks that this is not the city that we deserve. Like we deserve a little bit of a better city here. Mm -hmm. um, and so the key points behind that relationship is that, um, you know, transportation options support density because then if you live in a smaller uh, context and uh, don't necessarily have room to park a car um, and don't necessarily have the means or want to pay for a space to park that car, you have other options that you can rely on. And when you move more people closer together, um, the usability of, or the feasibility of everybody using vehicles in that context is just not possible and even when we get super low density and everybody can have a garage in a city like edmonton we still run into issues 
with congestion, even when mm -hmm. we overbuild our roads in many locations. Um, so, you know, we have a city where we recognize that it's not working and we need to push to a better context and, you know, just making sure that because people recognize there's an issue, they can see that, you know, transportation options, higher density, they work together. And I think, you know, that means change in our city, but that also means that our cities don't have to lose the things we love about them too. Mm. And we can actually enhance the things we really like about them uh, beyond that. It doesn't always have to be towers. It can also be like missing middle development as well, where, you know, it's kind of that sweet spot of four to eight stories and it can fit really well within a neighborhood. It's a very complicated process, but just reminding ourselves that, you know, transportation choices and density, they kind of work together and that density doesn't have to be the scary thing, but can be um, something that's really exciting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I think you're really speaking to that idea of a critical mass and how when you kind of get enough people in the same spot, uh, you can support those services, the, the local retail that we all love, our, our main streets, and have great transit that uh, is running frequently, or scooters. Like, it's interesting looking at where scooters are deployed. Um, and that really speaks to, you know, how many people there are around to use it. I always think, you know, no one chooses, I don't think anyone says, I would love to have an hour long commute every morning by car. Uh, but they make those choices because other aspects do make sense. So having a, a home that they can afford or, you know, a home that, that suits their needs. And I think it's really looking at just making it easy and logical. It's really just about providing choices so that people aren't forced uh, to make these trade-offs that they might otherwise not uh, not want to make. Uh, whereas if, you know, we have more missing middle that can provide some affordable housing options in the core of the city, people can choose to live close to their office or close to transit that can get them to their office. What I find exciting about city planning just overall, and I've, I've said it before, it's sort of you don't have to win hearts and minds. You just have to make it easy uh, for people. Um, and again, back to back to O'Damon, if you build it, they will come. Uh, we can really make it happen even in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, that was a great summarization. <laughs> Well, this has been such a delight. I so appreciate you taking the time, Stephen, and, uh, you know, sharing all of your insights with us. And uh, thank you uh, to you and, and all the other volunteers and uh, folks at Paths for People for the incredible work you do for our city. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, we're thankful for the opportunity to engage with candidates this election, and we um, look forward to sharing more content and getting folks more engaged. And, you know, that can be done through people following us on uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, Paths for People on all platforms, and then also people becoming a member with us. And that's on our website, pathsforpeople.org. Stronger, Smarter Together is produced and edited by Bryn Brattenwall. Music by Chloe Alpert and artwork by Joanne Pierce. Thanks to Stephen Rates for joining the podcast and to all of you for listening. Visit annstevenson.ca for more information about how you can help build our communities stronger, smarter, together.